I'm really grateful to be here with you for many, many reasons. Of course, to see Ken and his family. We had a wonderful time with them. What a great family. And it's true, our house is very open, and it is true, it's because of my wife. She has a gift of hospitality. We've often thought of crooks ever tried to rob our house, they'd never figure out the patterns, you know, because people are always coming and going. I'm also impressed, I came in, and I know you set up every week, and there's this huge book library out there and a place to buy books. And I'm amazed that that would be a high priority here, and I think that's testimony to the fact that this is a congregation that's on the stretch. You're reading, you're growing, and that's always been exciting for me. I see it in your pastor, and it doesn't surprise me that it's in the congregation. I am finishing my 45th read of the Bible. Right now, I should finish by the end of the year, and I've read the New Testament another 31 times. And I've met people who say, I don't need other books, I've got the Bible. I say, I don't think you're reading the same one I'm reading. My Bible causes me to open up to a wider world, not shut down to one book. God is at work in our world. And here was your pastor talking about so many things related to uh, creation care, related to justice, or this morning as we talk about passing on the joy that God has given us to others. There's so many things in this life, this, this life in a walk with Jesus, it opens us up to a wider world. It does not shut us down. It does not narrow us down. And this is an exciting part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Um, I want to open with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, for the privilege of being among these people, I do give you thanks and praise. This is one morning in a lifetime of mornings. Quickly it's come upon us and quickly it will pass. But I pray, Father, by your grace that you would allow us an encounter with you this morning whereby our lives would be in some ways transformed. That incrementally we would have grown because we were here. And long after we can even remember where we heard the things we heard this morning, that they would still have uh, action in our life. They would still be producing fruit in one way or another. And so for that to happen, we would pray that your Holy Spirit would have his way with us. We remember when your son took five loaves and two fish, nothing for those that needed to be fed, but he multiplied the bread and the loaves. I pray that your Holy Spirit would work that miracle again this morning, that he would take the words of one man, feeble as they may be, and he would multiply them and apply them to each heart so that every person here this morning would hear something that he or she would feel was directed to him or her and that they would leave with their hearts full as those by the side of the Sea of Galilee led, left with their bellies full. And we ask that this would happen for the glory of Christ in whose name we pray, amen. We've been singing Advent songs this morning. When the angels showed up and spoke to the shepherds that night, they said, we bring you good news of great joy this day in Bethlehem, a Savior is born, Christ the Lord. Great joy. We've heard about the fact that we can give more than just stuff to people. We can give of ourselves and we can give of that which we've received from Christ. I want to focus our attention along these lines this morning, looking at particularly two verses. Uh, to know the joy of this season 
and to pass it on to others. Um, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 16:11, Thou wilt make known to me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And then Philemon 6, a simple little book with one chapter. The sixth verse of that book, I pray that you'll be active, sharing your faith, so that you'll have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Jesus. The gift that we've received, we begin to understand more greatly when we pass it on to others. Um, it's true, I've spent so much time studying C.S. Lewis. I've actually been studying him for 46 years and teaching courses on him for 36. And I think I've lectured on him now in 68 universities in 11 different countries. If nobody was interested in him at all, I'd still be in because I've found that there's been a lot of growth in my life through reading his books and the books that he refers to. But Lewis, one of the things that attracted me to him is that he was haunted by a sense of longing. And he called it joy. Another word that he used was sehnsucht, a German word for longing. He called it sweet desire. Joy, the quest for some object that he felt was never fully given. He went through what he, would, what he called the dialectic of desire. He would take the longing of his heart and he would attach it to some object. And the object wouldn't fulfill him. So he would disengage and attach it to somebody, something else. Always with the expectant hope that this thing would fulfill him. And always with this disappointment. He wrote in Mere Christianity, if I find in myself a desire, a longing, this thing he called joy, that nothing in this earth can satisfy, it doesn't mean necessarily that the earth is a fraud. It may mean this world was meant to awaken the longing and set our hopes and the direction of our pursuits heavenward, Godward. There was a poet I got to through uh, Lewis, his name was Thomas Traherne, he was one of the metaphysical poets with George Herbert and John Donne. And Thomas Traherne, in a book he wrote called Centuries, said, that desire that causes a person to seek for riches and power is the greatest thing about him. Would you think that? If you saw somebody pursuing riches and power, would you say, wow, that's a great aspiration you have? Well, Traherne says the desire is the great thing. But the question is, is the connecting the desire to riches and power the thing that will satisfy? He says it's the greatest thing about us when it's properly guided and directed towards its actual object. The book of Ecclesiastes is a book that argues this very point. A friend of mine once said that he thought that the poetic books of the Bible were the how-to books of the Bible. So you have uh, Job, How to Suffer. Psalms, how to worship, in good times and bad. I mean, I, I don't know about you, I've met people before who say, I get so much uh, uh, inspiration from the Psalms. I say, I, I'm not sure you're reading all the same ones I'm reading. Sometimes I wonder if David wasn't bipolar. <laughs> no, it's how to worship God even in difficult times when we have to get through those things that I, I don't think God wants us bashing ba Babylonian babies' heads against the rocks. But aren't there times when you feel like you just want to shake somebody? Is your faith an irrelevancy in those times? Or does the Psalms give you a way to press out the pus of your heart and cleanse yourself before God that you might worship Him without alloy and unaffected? Psalms, how to worship. Proverbs, how to be wise. Song of Solomon, how to love. Ecclesiastes, 
how to be confused about life? I, I mean, you know, what do you do with that one? No. How to enjoy life. How does it go? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity under the sun. If I've taken the joy and the desire of my heart and attached it to something under the sun, I will not be fulfilled. The under the sun perspective is something that's temporal, earthbound. It can't ultimately satisfy us. Why? Because Ecclesiastes 3.11 says God has placed eternity in our hearts. Or as Augustine said, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. And then Ecclesiastes 2.25, for who can eat and who can enjoy life without him? You give me him and I'm going to find joy in all these other things properly. Uh, Augustine called it ordered love. C.S. Lewis said, put first things first, you get second things thrown in. Put second things first and you lose out on both first and second things. Lewis, like the psalmist, finally found what he was looking for in Jesus. And I believe joy in Jesus is inseparable from his love for us. All of our security rests in this fact, that the God of the universe knows us and loves us and forgives us our sins in Christ in his death and his resurrection. And this is why the angel said, I bring you news of great joy. Unto you this day a Savior is born. Christ the Lord. C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, Christians believe that somehow the death of Christ sets us right with God. After a lifetime of studying Lewis, I mentioned I don't always agree with them. And and I know one thing that I think think he got wrong. Um, By the way, Augustine holds his view too, St. Augustine. So if C.S. Lewis and Augustine hold this view and I disagree with them, I'm the one that's probably wrong. But give me a moment to see if I can't make a case. Lewis said he thought pride was the great sin. And and when he talks about pride, he's not talking about um, uh, pride of a job well done or the pride you take when you see your child or a friend do exceptionally well. He's talking about that form of pride that exhibits itself as pretense, makes itself look better than it is. And Lewis thinks that this kind of pride was the great sin uh, from which all other sins constellate or are generated. Well, certainly pride can generate sin, but I'm not convinced it's the first one. Um, Let me see if I can give you an example. If Lewis had said that he thought pride was the greatest sin, like the apex of a pyramid is the greatest point in that pyramid, I could have signed on. But that would mean beneath the apex of the pyramid would be things far more substantive until you get to the base. What's at the base of this pyramid? Well, if in fact pride, as I suggest, is a kind of pretense, making ourselves look better than we really are, what precedes that? I don't know how it is for you, but I know with me it's usually fear or insecurity. If you knew me like I was, maybe you'd reject me, so maybe some veneer comes up, hiding If that's true, then the scriptures are explicit about what might be at the base of this pyramid. For the scriptures say, perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. If that's true, then a corollary could be drawn, imperfect love breeds anxiety. You and I have never been loved perfectly by another mere mortal. Every one of us is burdened at some level, saddled with the burden of anxiety to some degree. 
And it gets worse before it gets better because we've never loved anybody perfectly. And people who look to us for love have also experienced the same form of anxiety. There's only one person who knows you utterly. Every nook and cranny of your soul, every insecurity, every failure, every shortcoming. And guess what? That one, he loves you unconditionally. His love is ontological. That's a good college word, isn't it? It's essential to his being. God is love. That means his love can't be diminished by our poor performance nor improved by our good performance. I think the greatest sin is to live in neglect of God's love or in rejection of God's love. And that all the other sins start to come from that because we try to find our security and our joy elsewhere. And the angel said, I bring you good news of great joy. Unto you this day a Savior is born. One who's willing to reestablish in you this great sense of his love. Let me see if I can give you an example of what I'm talking about. I was on an airplane many years ago, and I saw a movie on a plane. And, and I don't like to recommend movies I see on planes because I don't know how, how much they've been sanitized so they could show them to an airplane audience, you know. But this particular movie, there was a moment in the film where I just lost it. I started crying. I'm a high T on the Myers-Briggs. I live in my head. I'm not supposed to do that, especially on airplanes, you see. But I lost it. What was the movie? It was called The Notebook. (laughs) I'm always trying to figure out why everybody laughs whenever I mention that movie. I know it's a chick flick, right? But I'm secure enough in my manhood. I can watch a movie like that. So let me, how many of you saw it? How many of you did not see it? Well, I'm going to rehearse it for those of you that did not see it, and I'm going to review it for those of you that did, because it carries with it my point. It starts off with this old man played by James Garner, and he's going to a rest home, and he's going to read a story. He comes up to this woman, and the woman's very standoffish, and you get the idea that she has some form of dementia. The orderly at the hospital says, it's okay, he comes and reads to you every day. So consequently, uh, the whole story is about this man reading this story to this old woman, played by Gina Rowland, and there's always this flashback to time before. And, and, and the flashback has Ryan Gosling in his first big starring role and Rachel McAdams in her first starring role. And, and Ryan Gosling lives in a, a town that's near... Uh, um, um, Charleston, South Carolina, outside on a lake, and this family has come to uh, summer there. They're wealthy. They come from one of the big towns in, in the south. Maybe, maybe it is Charleston. Maybe it's uh, Charlotte or, or Atlanta or something like that. And, and they bring their daughter. They're wealthy. And she meets this boy who grew up in the town who's not wealthy at all. There's so many things that count from any kind of relationship developing. He's of modest means, She's wealthy. He has a high school diploma. He likes the poetry of Walt Whitman, but she has all the best education her parents' money can afford. They have all kinds of aspirations for her. Uh, He comes from brokenness. We don't know why the mother's missing. Was there a separation in that family? Did she die? But there's clearly been brokenness and pain. She has an intact family, but they're full of pretense. And yet, during the summer, a relationship begins to develop. But at this time, the girl's parents are concerned about it because they have higher aspirations for her. 
And while they're pulling her away from the town that summer, the boy cries out, I'll write to you every day. And while he cries this out, her mother hears it and she intercepts every letter that he sends every day before she ever gets it. And she thinks he said he would write and he never wrote. He writes every day and he says she never writes back. But still he persists in his love for her. World War II breaks out and circumstances pull them apart even further. And you think this love can never work out. And then all of a sudden, at that moment in the movie, the director tips his hand. And you find out it is this old man reading this story to this old woman. And it's their story. And every day he comes to remind her of his love for her. There comes this moment towards the end of the movie where they're eating dinner in the hospital, a nice dinner, a tablecloth on the, on the table. There's a rose and a bud vase, a candle's burning, and a record player's playing all the music that had informed them of their relationship. And this whole environment is pulsing out to this woman, the love of this man for her. He finishes the story. And she looks at him and says, that's the most beautiful love story I've ever heard in my life. And it sounds so familiar to me. And all of a sudden, cognition washes across her face, and she says, it's our story, isn't it? He says, yes. She says, how are the children? That's a question a mother would ask, isn't it? He says, they're fine. They came to see you today. She says, tell them I love them. He says, I will. And while the music's playing, she says, hold me. Hold me. Can we dance? And they start dancing across that hospital floor. And while they're dancing, as quickly as she fell into cognition, she falls out of cognition, finds herself in the arms of a stranger, and starts screaming out in fear. And the orderlies have to come in and sedate her. And James Garner's character, watching the whole thing, is standing there, biting his knuckle, weeping. And that was the moment I lost it. Why? As I thought about it later, I realized it was so touching to me because it's all of our story. We're all part of an eternal love relationship. And we live most of our life in dementia. The great sin is neglect of the love of God. And yet persistent is his love for us. And he keeps telling us over and over in untold numbers of ways how much he loves us, even the shepherds, to a world that was lost they came and said, we bring you good news of great joy. Unto you this day a Savior is born, one who still pursues, one that Paul says shows in Romans 5.8, proves his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Wow, that's remarkable, remarkable. This is the great gift of Christmas. And as we think about this and our lives are transformed by it, we get to tell others that they too can inherit a great gift. So when Paul wrote the passage in Philemon, he says, I pray that you'll be active in sharing your faith, that you'll have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ Jesus. The two words in English translated full understanding come from one Greek word, and it is the most intimate word for knowledge in the Greek New Testament. You want intimacy with Jesus? You want to know his love? If you know it, it will start to pour out of you onto others, naturally, not intrusively, not aggressively, not unthoughtfully, but winsomely, joyfully. 
The command to tell others about him will be in your life matched with the overwhelming sense of his love for you. The great commission is always to be wrapped up in the context of the great commandment, love God, love your neighbor. How will we grow? I want to suggest three quick ways. If there's three, there could be 303. This isn't an exhaustive list. But the first way we'll grow when we uh, share our faith is that we will find other people will ask us questions. I, I didn't become a Christian until I was a freshman in college. My life was really conflicted. There were a lot of sad things. I didn't know I could be forgiven. I didn't think I was loved. And when I heard that the God of the universe knew me and loved me and forgave me, I was overwhelmed by it. As a matter of fact, I, I don't know a person who's lived a moment of real life who doesn't long desperately to be loved unconditionally. And I don't know a person who's lived a moment of, un, uh, a, a, a moment of honest life who's unaware that they're messed up. So what could be better than to find out that the God of the universe loves us and forgives us? I, I was coming back from a theology conference two weeks ago. It was in San Antonio. I was flying back up to Chicago, and I'd read a paper actually on C.S. Lewis at this theology conference. I'm on the plane sitting by the window, and this guy comes in and sits down next to me. He says, rats, I've got a middle seat. What a ripoff this is. Well, anyway, some sort of conversation is going. A moment later, a guy comes and sits on the aisle seat, and he looks at me, and he says, Dr. Root, I don't know this guy from Adam. I, I, I said, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know how I know you. He says, I was at your paper at the theology conference. And I said, wow, that was interesting. And we started talking theology right there over this guy in the middle seat. <laughs> and I turned to him, and I said, please forgive us for our unthoughtfulness. What's your name? He said, Sean. I said, Sean, we were just at a theology conference together, and we were talking. There's no reason why you don't need to sit there and not feel like you could be included in this conversation, too. And while we're talking for a little bit, I finally turned to Sean. And I said, Sean, do you have any, any kind of spiritual interest in your own life? He said, I went to Peru once and studied with a shaman. I said, well, that's interesting. You don't have to, you don't have to suppress the interest that's already going on in some spiritual way. Uh, uh, the Bible says that God will not put out the smoking flax. He won't break the bruised reed. And maybe there's some spiritual interest here. So tell me about that. That's very interesting. And then he said, tell me what's in it for you. I said, Sean, the overwhelming thing for me is that the God of the universe knows me and he loves me. And I find that so compelling. And he forgives me and I know I'm messed up. And I am grateful that I always have a fresh start to look honestly at life in the context of his love and forgiveness. To grow and change and prune things that should be pruned. Because he loves me and forgives me. And the Sean guy goes, that is the most comforting thing I have ever heard in my life. And I said, well, Sean, is there any reason why you wouldn't want to accept this in your life right now? He said, none. So I prayed a little prayer with him. And then he looks up like Jesus was stuffed in the luggage racks up above. <laughs> he looks up and he starts asking Jesus to come into his heart and forgive him of his sins and, and receive his love. And this guy who was sitting on the uh, 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 aisle, he was a doctoral student at Trinity Seminary. He just lights up and he starts mentoring Sean in the seat, been sending him literature, trying to keep up to follow up, but it wasn't hard. And Sean discovered this is the most comforting thing. 
So anyway, I came to Christ. I discovered that. And so I wanted people to know. And when I would talk to them, what I discovered is that people will ask questions. One of the first ways you'll grow in your faith is people will ask you questions. And I, I, I didn't, I, I hate to confess this to you, but I never once asked the question of God's good and all-powerful, why does evil exist in the universe when I was young? Never even crossed my mind. I've since written a book on that. It's an interesting topic. But I never heard the question until I started telling other people about the love of God and the forgiveness of God. And when people asked me that question, I said, that is a really good question. I don't know. But if that's the only barrier keeping you from faith, I won't leave a stone unturned until I can find out an answer. And I don't think we ever get to the last word of any of these questions. But substantive words, significant responses, I think we can find. And so I would start digging. And then I would come back and share the answer. Sometimes people would come to faith. Sometimes they'd just ask new questions. I'd say, that's a good question too. And I would go dig for answers. And, and I found that as I was digging for answers, my faith was way more interesting than I ever first imagined when I began the whole process. I learned, too, not to be afraid of questions. Um, I, I, I think that, that we shouldn't be afraid sometimes if we have doubts about our faith. Um, if we don't have any doubts at all, then we've deluded ourselves to thinking we've achieved omniscience. We've got it all figured out. None of us do. I think, people, we are basically pea brains. <laughs> if you go to the Widener Library at Harvard University, there's 19 million volumes under that one roof. Who's read them all? We make judgments all the time. We hardly know anything. Bodleian Library at Oxford University, 130 miles of shelf space of books. Who's read them all? Forget that. Have you read all the uh, books in your local library here in town? Forget that. Have you read all the books you have on your shelf at home? We're making judgments all the time. That's why I can't, I have real difficulty trusting an atheist. You know what an atheist is saying? There's never been one item ever written in human history that would confirm the existence of God. There's not one of those books in that Widener Library at Harvard. And nothing will ever be written. Give me an honest agnostic over an atheist any day. And, 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 and it's interesting to me, too, because C.S. Lewis says negative knowledge, no possibility of this, is always harder to prove than positive. If I were to say in this room there are no spiders, to say that conclusively, I would have had to have checked every nook and cranny. But to find a spider, I could just see one scurrying across the floor. Positive knowledge is easier to assert than negative knowledge. Now, there's more complexity than that, but, but this is the thing. People will ask you questions. You'll dig for answers. You won't be afraid of the questions. Your faith will grow. Second, your faith will grow. As you begin to give the joy that you've received to others, your faith will grow because people will scrutinize your life. I know a man, he told me one time, I would never put a Christian bumper sticker on my car. If I did that, I'd have to drive better. <laughs> when you share your faith in Christ, people will point out every shortcoming in your life. I have a friend, he teaches at the Labrie in England, and he told me 20 years ago, students were coming, asking the question, is it true? Now they come and ask the question, is it real? Is it real? My enthusiasm as a, new sh as a new Christian to share my faith, I think I turned some people off. And I realized I made mistakes. 
I remember praying about that time in my life. Oh, Lord, I pray, discipline me. Discipline me. I know I need to grow. I think probably every person in my life that next three months decided it was their responsibility to come point something out in my life that was all screwed up. I never pray, Lord, discipline me ever again. I prayed, Lord, give me a soft heart, keep me from a stiff neck, and teach me vicariously through the mistakes of others so I won't have to go through them myself. (laughs) But you know what? The things that the people were saying were true. If God really loves us, then we should be able to look at those things. It was painful, but I learned to thank them. Learned to ask their forgiveness. That's a good thing. If I know that I'm forgiven in Christ and I should be willing to ask forgiveness of others I might have hurt. If I know I'm loved in Christ and I should be willing to learn in the context of that love the places where I need yet to grow. Not being afraid because of his love, perfect love which casts out fear. It was also interesting to me because um, in my sharing the gospel with other people, I've met many people who don't want anything to do with Jesus because they've been hurt by somebody who claimed to be a Christian. Have you ever run into that? And I want to hear their story. And I say, it sounds like there's some sadness. Tell me about it. They tell me about some horrible situation. And I look at them and I say, I am a Christian. Will you allow me to stand as a surrogate in the place of that person who hurt you and ask for your forgiveness? And the reason why I want to do this is because I wouldn't want anything to keep you from seeing how much you are loved by God and forgiven. We share Christ because people ask questions and we grow in our understanding as we dig for answers. We share Christ because we want to authenticate the gospel with lives that are changing, not perfect, but not afraid to acknowledge the shortcomings and own them. Because we live in a world where everybody, if they're honest about their life, knows they're messed up. I believe in the high ideal of love, but I've had sharp words with the people I say I love most in the world. And I don't know anybody who hasn't. But what do you do with that so that you can live an authentic life? Well, we can practice authenticity as people scrutinize our lives. And if we practice that authenticity, it's a validation of the love of God and his forgiveness. Third, We share our faith because we start seeing Jesus show up in our life. Unto you this day is born a Savior. He showed up in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, and he's still showing up. I don't believe we take Jesus to anybody. I believe he's already there. I think he's more interested in the other people around us than you and I ever imagined. And so we go and we want to find out where he's at work in this person's life. And as we seek to find out, we then begin to discover where we can make explicit what he might be doing implicitly. You ask questions, public questions. What's your name? Shows you're interested. Are you from Bend, Oregon? Yeah, I am. Well, what was it like to grow up here? Or are you from Ben? No, I grew up in, in uh, uh, Southern California, but don't like to admit it around here. <laughs> I remember once saying to a guy, what's your name? He told me, Peter. It was in Chicago. I said, are you from Chicago? Public question. 
He said, no, I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, but moved to Chicago when I was 12 when my parents divorced. I moved here with my mother. He didn't have to tell me that. You ask public questions and people will sometimes give you information. Every bit of information they give you, listen well, because it comes with permission to ask about that thing. And I started asking this guy, that sounded like it was painful for you. In time, I began to discover in the discussion that in fact, he had bitterness in his heart towards a father who had neglected him all of his life. And he didn't like what the bitterness was doing to him. You know, Anne Lamont in her book, Traveling Mercies. Bitterness is like you drinking the rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. If we can untether from those events that where we were hurt by, it will be corrosive in our lives. And that person may have been 20 years out of our life. And the only way you can get past that is through forgiveness. And I started talking to this young man about forgiveness, and it was relevant to his life. It wasn't banging him over the head with the gospel. It was speaking to the gospel at the place of deep felt need where God was already at work in his life. I was at the Vienna airport a few years back. It was over spring break. I'd gone to Bratislava, uh, uh, Slovakia to give lectures on C.S. Lewis. The people that asked me to come there dropped me off at the airport in Vienna. I got through all the uh, check-in, my luggage, got through passport control, got to the gate area, and once I got to the gate area, um, uh, I was sitting there and found out the flight had been delayed about three hours, and I love that. I love the anonymity of airports, reading on a book and so on. All of a sudden, this young woman comes into the gate area, and she has a lanyard with a name tag on it, a clipboard, and she's going up to people, and she's asking them questions. It's a German-speaking city. She's speaking German to these people, and I figure she's taking a survey for the airport. Sure enough, a few minutes later, she makes her way around to me, and she speaks to me in flawless English. Talk about insecurity. What am I wearing that gave it away that I wasn't a German-speaking person? And sure enough, she was doing a survey for the airport, and I said, what's your name? Public question. My name's Allegra. Allegra, are you from Vienna? No, I'm from southern Austria. What brought you to Vienna? Now we're going deeper. I'm a student. Oh, where do you go to school? What are you studying? I found out she went to University of Vienna. She was studying anthropology. I asked her, does she still have family back in southern Austria? Only her father, but he's a bitter man. You listen. Bitter. What, 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 Allegra, what caused him to be so bitter? Must have been hard for you. It was really hard. He's so toxic. Well, what caused him to be bitter? My mother left him to, to go with her lover to Canada. She probably left him because he was so toxic. And she says, it's worse than that. And I go, how's that? She says, I've got a brother too. He's at the university, but we don't get along. It's even worse than that. She's going deeper and deeper. I'm listening. I think God's at work because God loves Allegra. And how can I speak in a way where he's already working? God shows up. She says, it's worse than that because my boyfriend went to Florence to study art for six months, told me to wait for him. I waited dutifully. He came back yesterday to tell me he met somebody better in Florence. This woman felt abandoned. She felt unloved. I know where God is pulling at her heart. And I said to her, Allegra, this is 20 minutes now. I know her life story. She hasn't asked me one question. <laughs> Nor did she feel I was intruding in her life. I think she longed to process this stuff. And I, I said to her, you know what, Allegra, I know you have to do your survey, but I've been sent here to tell you something. And then she thought I was a plant at the airport to see if she was doing her work. And I said, no, I had nothing to do with that. 
And, 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 and she goes through her survey. How long did it take me to check in? All this other stuff. And then she said to me, what were you sent to tell me? I said, Allegra, I was sent to tell you this. The God of the universe knows you and he loves you. Allegra, he loves you. A third time, because sometimes it takes three times to get through. Allegra, he loves you. She burst into sobs, bawling. Everybody in that area is looking over at us now. But it didn't make any difference to her. And she said to me, but I've done so many bad things in my life. And I said, oh, Allegra, he knows about every one. And that's why he sent his son to forgive you of all of it. People, the angel said, I bring you good news of great joy. For unto you this day is born a Savior, Christ the Lord. All our deepest longing will be found in him. A love that's unconditional. A forgiveness that knows no depth or breadth or width because it is infinite and eternal. A joy that not only was told to us by the angels, but a joy that we could keep telling. As we heard earlier, we give more than stuff to those around us. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you've done for us in Christ. I pray that this Christmas season particularly, you would fill our hearts anew and afresh with richer understanding of what it means to know that we are loved unconditionally, that we are forgiven out of the riches of your mercy and grace. And oh Lord, make that so fill us and overflow from us that we will speak of it from our lips as freely and as naturally, as tenderly, as thoughtfully, as compassionately and as winsomely as we might. For the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.